So hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, Jennifer Sag. Jennifer is an author, a producer, a business executive, and a former elite gymnast. She was a seven-time member of the U.S. Women's National Team and the 1986 U.S. Women's All-Around National Champion. In her autobiography, Chalked Up, Jen shares the story of her gymnastics career and the sacrifices she made to reach that elite status, including her mental health and physical health. Time and time again, Jennifer has proven her strength and success in the face of great adversity. So let's get into it, Jen. Let's go beyond the prescription. Thank you so much for coming today. I'm thrilled. You're really, to me, an inspiration for women and really other human beings who are trying to make sense of the crazy world we live in, who are trying to, I think right now, make sense of our complex world and, and, and actually really make sense of their internal worlds. Right now, having lived through a pandemic, I think if you haven't had to reckon with your mental health, you probably had to during COVID. We've all experienced some sort of loss, some sort of grief, some sort of disruption to our routines. Some people have experienced overt trauma. And what interests me so much about you and your story is how you have really channeled your self-awareness and then your strength, your mental strength and your physical strength into being who you are today. Of course, being a work in progress, like we all are, right? So tell me about how it started. Like, tell me about, you were a gymnast from your age six. Yeah. And then you're a national champion in 1986. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I'm pretty old. I'm 53. And so there weren't a ton of choices for girls in sports. You know, now your daughter can play soccer, basketball. I mean, you know, my son plays every sport under the sun. He's seven and there's girls on every team. That wasn't the case in 1975. Um, It was just a few years after Title IX. Um, And so new opportunities for girls in sports were just emerging. And I sort of chose the two paths that were kind of most common for girls at the time, which was dance and gymnastics. Um, And then in in 1976, uh, at the Olympics, Nadia broke onto the stage um, and she was 14 and she got the perfect 10 and all these gold medals. And I was just entranced, like, you know, many little girls across the country because we related to her. Um, She was a kid. You know, we could see ourselves in her. Um, and so I just begged my mom, you know, I think I might've already been in a class or two, but I was obsessed and I just wanted to be in the gym all the time. And gymnastics is really fun. And it was really, really fun for a really, really long time until it really wasn't fun anymore. But I, um, I loved it. And at a certain point, um, I had to choose between dance and gymnastics because gymnastics is very demanding. And unfortunately, we can talk about this. It's always been viewed as sort of a young girl sport that you needed to succeed before maturing, before puberty. So it's this, like this race against the clock, which is false. That 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 is a false premise, but that is the one the sport has operated under. Um, and that meant I was training 
20 hours a week at like nine years old. You know, I mean, that's yeah. just crazy, right? Um, and by the time I was 10, I qualified for the elite level, which is, you know, the level you compete at to, to make the national team. And I'm training 20 or 30 hours a week at age 10. So I dropped dance. Yeah, it's a lot, but I still loved it at this point. At that point, you still were, you, it was still something you loved and felt oh like my was, for a yes. while still. Yeah. And I begged my parents, you know, to go to a different gym because I wanted to break onto the national team. Um, and I, between the ages of about 10 and 13, was blessed to have an incredibly supportive coach. Um, and she, she's no longer with us. She passed away a while ago, but she really viewed her job as a coach as really one of an educator. And she concerned herself with the child's total development. Um, and I feel really lucky that I had had her for a time. Um, I did make the national team with her, but I wanted to break into the top six. I was sort of mid hovering around top 10 in juniors, top 10, 11, 12, something like that. And so I demanded of my parents that we find another gym. And I, you know, my parents often talk, my dad in particular, about how just driven I was. Like they didn't know what to do with me. Like I just wanted to spend all my time in the gym. And so I ended up choosing a gym in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Uh, called Parkettes. They've been in the news a bit lately. They're under investigation for abusive practices, finally. Um, and I, I chose that gym. There were three sort of major clubs at the time, and that was closest to my home. And so at first we drove there. It was two hours each way. Eventually I moved there on my own and lived with a coach. It's hard to describe how intense it was, and, and I don't really mean intense in a, in a good way. Right. Um, I mean, instantly, just the the screaming and yelling and bullying and the weigh-ins and your weight getting announced on the loudspeaker every day, um, berated for gaining a quarter of a pound. You know, these are 13, 14-year-old kids, kids as young as 9 and 10, really. Um, but I submitted to it because that's what I wanted. And I that was normal. I don't know right. how to describe it, but it's like in, you can kind of lose all perspective when you're in this myopic world and suddenly the rest of the world is shut out and behaviors that to any normal person would be considered child abuse right. were just totally normalized and obedience was sort of the highest virtue um and so it was really beaten into us that you don't say anything you don't complain if you are suffering it is your weakness if you're in pain, I mean, we, I trained on a broken ankle for two years. You know, if you complain about the pain, it's your own laziness and weakness. Um, and there was just no regard for these little child athletes and kids were just driven from the sport and broken. It sounds like right away that shame and coercion oh, yeah. and, and like, if I may say some brainwashing were in oh. the driver's seat. And, you know, as you well know, and we'll, we'll talk about this further, you know, children count on adults to lead the way. And what's so tragic about your experience and what's tragic about so many other children in this country and around the world is that when shame and fear are in the driver's seat, that is, that is such a recipe for, relationships with food that are broken, relationships with other people that are broken, physical and mental health distress. So so keep going and tell me what, I mean, because you told me about this the time when you were 
training on a broken ankle, you'd had multiple cortisone shots into the joint. Yeah. And this is deep into my other injuries as well. So that was sort of at the end of my career. But I, you know, you raised such a great point about shame because it's so deeply instilled and you, yeah. it's really the tactic of of any abuser. And I didn't really understand it, it. And we'll get to this, I know, but I don't think I really understood it until I was almost 40. How could you? Um, because, you know, you, you think about it this way, my, my therapist put it this way to me, you know, when a, when a parent is abusive of the child, they say, if you weren't bad, I wouldn't have to do this. That was sort of the mechanism they used. If you weren't lazy, I wouldn't have to scream at you and call you names. If you weren't fat, I wouldn't have to tell you you can't eat any food for the next week. And so you internalize that shame. And what happens is when you suffer, you think it's your own fault. So it's this horrible, vicious cycle. It's your own fault for being weak. The challenge, I guess, was you know, I handed myself over to these coaches at 13 years old. My parents weren't there. I was living away from home. Parents often weren't even allowed in the gym. And you have to ask yourself why. Why? Right? Well, we, I think we know why now. <laughs> yeah. And periodically they were, they, they sort of toggled back and forth, but I was becoming more successful. You know, I quickly escalated in the ranks. I was ranked in the top six within the first year that I got there. And so it's very confusing because you're like, oh, I'm getting this thing I want, but I'm disintegrating. I'm deteriorating. Um, but I held it together for a while. Um, I was sort of known as a very stoic competitor. Well, you um, had to be. I mean, what was your other option? The other option was to walk away, which right. some, some did um, smart, smartly. <laughs> um, and, and there's, you know, is winning the most, you know, there's cult, broader cultural issues here around what is success and is winning the most important thing. But we wanted to win. And that's what these coaches committed to giving us. Now, we can debate all day long about if there's another way to do that. I believe, yes, there is. The coaches in gymnastics don't believe so. They believe these abusive practices are just tough coaching and good luck getting them to see um, that they're abusive. And, you know, I really believe that change in the sport will come when this old guard leaves, because I don't, I don't think they're capable of seeing it. Um, but within a year, I broke my ankle um, at a competition. Um, the cast was removed in nine days so that I could get back to training, uh, obviously not healed. Um, and so then I just kept re-injuring like the other side, right? Because, <laughs> you know, I have this half healed ankle, so I'm favoring the other side, back and forth, back and forth. Um, I did make it to the world championships in 1985, which was a big, you know, achievement. Um, competed throughout the competition. And on the last event, I broke my femur, which as you know, as a doctor is very hard to do. Pretty important bone and a hard one to break. Yeah. I don't wish that on anyone. I mean, you must've uh, had some osteopenia, which is, you know, pre-osteoporosis from not, I mean, I don't know, some, some weak, weakened bones, but who knows? You didn't have a bone density back then. Yeah. People have said that. I mean, it was a pretty nasty fall from a very, from great height. So I think even if I was perfectly healthy, I probably would right. have managed to break that thing in two and you can right. watch it on YouTube. I will oh, not gosh. watch it, but it is, right. um, it is available. Um, so I broke the femur. We all thought that was the end of my career. I mean, it's a pretty horrible injury. And I came back in about nine months and I won the national championship. Um, no one thought I'd be there. 
Um, and it was really at that point when I won the national championship that everything kind of fell apart. Um, I was, uh, because of the femur not having been fully healed when I returned to the sport, I was favoring the other side and I had a broken ankle. We didn't know it was broken at the time. I, that's a generous way to put it. Any rational person who saw this giant grapefruit sized purple ankle would have known, but we just kept taping it and getting more cortisone shots. And I had a doctor, unfortunately, that was sort of in cahoots with our, with our coaches and just kept pushing me back out there. And I remember thinking that night that it was this like amazing thing to have won the championship, something I could never have dreamed of and that I was never going to make it to 1988. You know, everything is measured in Olympic bursts in, in the sport. And I had two years to go and it seemed an eternity. Um, I had a severe eating disorder. My ankle was undiagnosed and incredibly painful. And living with pain is um, really wearing on your mental health, as, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, but I kept going. Um, and I really did start to fall apart at that point and, and ultimately kept training, went back to 1987 USA championships and, and placed, I think, seventh there. So that was pretty solid. Um, good enough for an alternate spot on the Olympic team, if it were an Olympic year. Um, and then I just, I came undone. I don't know how else, how else to describe it. And I ended up leaving that club and going back to the one with the nice coach I told you about, but really what she allowed me to do was just sort of fade away and, yeah. and be okay with that. And, um, and, you know, sadly, my parents got so caught up in it. And my parents are like very nice, normal people, but they sacrificed so much and did not understand that I couldn't do it anymore. And were yeah. very disappointed in me that I had walked away. I'd love to just sort of frame it here for for people, for people watching. And you tell me if this is if this is right, because as a doctor, my job isn't simply to put people on the scale and check their cholesterol and say, oh, it looks like you're going to live another year, see you next year. It's really to understand how people's stories and their lived experience inform everything from their relationship to food, to their relationship yeah. with their own body, to their, you know, how they feel every day. Because yeah. health is not just about, you know, your checkup. It's about how you relate to the external world, how you, yeah. how you feed your body, how you move your body, how you feel. It's about pain mental, physical, how you manage that pain? Do you self-medicate with alcohol? Do you medicate with OxyContin? Do you medicate as appropriate with Advil and physical therapy or yeah. not training on a broken ankle? So right. what's interesting to me is that your story is so, it's so emblematic of, of shame being in the driver's seat and shame is so poisonous. You know, shame and guilt yeah. are different as, as our, as Brene Brown says, you know, guilt is yeah. like, I, I feel yeah. bad that I did something. Shame is I am bad. That's right. And the problem with shame being in the driver's seat, I don't need to tell you, but is that when shame is in the driver's seat, the I am bad feeling, that leads to success, can, because people are motivated to not yeah. feel like they're a bad person. Yeah. It can lead to external success um, and can lead to, to the false sense of feeling like um, this is, this is who I am. Let's not take away from the fact that you are a national champion. Like that is success. So right. let's, let's call that what it is. Let's not say that's a failure. That is a success, but what is success and what was the price tag of that success on your emotional and physical health? And, and does that matter? And so, and I think, I, I think you and I agree that, that it does matter. What's interesting to me again, is that shame was such a 
featured part of the way that, that you were messaged as a young age, then it was internalized. Yeah. And then it affected well, but, how you felt mentally and physically and literally had like broken bones and sort of a broken sense of body self. image and yeah. self. And then the question is really, I mean, so trauma is such a fascinating phenomenon, whether you have been at the Viet in the Vietnam War theater, you've watched the Twin Towers fall in front of your eyes, or you've been an elite athlete who's been traumatized like you were mentally and physically. You know, we all know about PTSD, like the post-traumatic stress disorder where people feel as you have described, nightmares, yeah. you know, flooding of your emotions with bad feelings that you then have to put somewhere, whether it's in therapy or, you know, in other self-sabotaging behaviors. Um, but there's also something called post-traumatic growth, which is mm. kind of a cutesy word in a way, but, but, and not everyone has the luxury of growing from traumatic events. But what I'd love to hear you talk about is how did you like you've reached this point in your life where you're writing and speaking and producing now about trauma, about lived experiences. Like, how do you see your experience of mental and physical health struggle channeled into who you are now? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I spent about a decade just sort of suffering, I would say. I will say this just briefly about the eating disorder. And, you know, it was purposeful. They wanted, they, we oh, didn't yeah. call it an eating disorder. It was 1986, but like we were told lose weight by any means necessary, lose two pounds by tomorrow or you're off the team. Um, and so it, it wasn't an accident, but I, I do remember, you know, I went to, I, I left for college. I was definitely not whole. Um, my anorexia sort of transitioned into, into bulimia and that persisted. I had a couple sort of fits and starts with therapy and bad therapists I think back then people still didn't really understand eating disorders. And of course, you know, I had read everything I could about it. And so I knew why I did what I did, but I didn't, I couldn't stop. You know, I remember going to one therapist while I was in college and I went in and analyzed myself and I said, this is how I feel and this is why I do. And she's like, well, you understand it. So you're okay. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not. <laughs> so right. I, I gave right. that up and I will say, and I think this is unusual. I decided in my late twenties, I was done with it. You were like, check please. I, I said, I'm just not, and I know that's uncommon. Um, I had, I was self-identifying as a feminist. You know, I went to college and I got very um, activated and I realized that occupying my brain and my time with 90% of my thoughts being about what I was gonna eat and what I weighed was going to really limit me and what I could achieve in the world. And that men weren't walking around doing that. And so I was sort of self-imposing these limits on myself and they were in contradiction with the values that I said I cared about. And so I was like, that's it. I'm done. So this was, let me clarify, this was, this was you on your own. This was not because of a therapist giving you that insight. You knew, like you are not, it sounds like someone who would have developed an eating disorder had they not been feeding you the messaging about. I mean, who knows, right? But like, it's hard to say because I'm definitely like the type A. I was sure. the type A student and all that. But I, sure. I definitely was in an environment where they were like, "You have to do this." Right. So, <laughs> so it was set up, you know, intentionally, unintentionally. Who knows? But and you fit the profile of someone who might have disordered eating to begin with. By the way, what woman or person in so, America doesn't have some relationship with food that's a little wonky, right? right? But the point is that you were able to have that awareness and insight 
despite the therapist not being a good fit for you. Like you recognized it, which is so, which is unusual actually. I think it is really unusual. And I just was tired of it. And I knew so many women and, you know, you rightly point out that most women have some sort of dysfunctional or disordered relationship with food or their own body. And all I wanted was to be released from that so that I could do other things in the world. Um, I just wanted to not care about that. So much brain space was occupied by it, I'm sure. And that's right. But again, I just want to, I just want to point out how unusual, I mean, I see a lot of young women who are disordered with their eating. I see a lot of older women who never were told as a young age, this is an eating disorder and they think it's normal. I'm just thin and don't. Well, it is normal. I mean, in a weird way, right? Like you look to your right and you look to your left and everybody has some weird dysfunctional relationship with food. And I was like, I don't want any of that. I don't even care if I eat like crap. I just don't want to think about it. It's really unusual, I think, to be able to get that kind of insight on your own. It shows what, you know, it's the same character trait that probably got you to be a national champion. Like you have a lot of reserve, like you, you have a lot of emotional reserve and a lot of emotional intelligence because not a lot of people can, if you're immersed in an eating disorder, you know, you, you can't always see the forest for the trees. Yes. And to be clear, I made that decision and I remember making it very consciously in my crappy San Francisco apartment that, you know, I shared with like five other young women, um, which you could still do and kind of afford then. You can't really do that now in San Francisco. Um, I remember making the decision and it's not like it was over. It was still a, a battle, but the, the bad behaviors stopped. Yeah. You know, I, I, I wasn't recording my food. I wasn't weighing myself every day. I wasn't binging. Um, I wasn't purging. I wasn't doing any of that. And yep. it cleared the space for me. And that didn't mean that every once in a while I didn't kind of fall back into overly worrying about it, but I stopped the unhealthy behaviors and, yep. and my brain came along with that over time. You know, in times of stress, I'd sometimes fall back on it. I mean, my first pregnancy when I was um, 31 was difficult, right? But that also was a gift because you're like, oh, wait a minute. My body is actually meant for other things. It's not just some sort of aesthetic instrument, right? It's not for someone else's consumption and it's not for someone else to manipulate and it's not then for you to think you need to manipulate that's amazing. That's right. So when you were pregnant, you were like, wow, my body has a purpose beyond performance and beyond yeah. aesthetics. It's like making another human, which pretty cool. Yeah. And so it's not, again, that it wasn't hard. Like it's hard yeah. when you gain 40 pounds in a pregnancy, not to panic and freak out, but I wouldn't, I refused, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember telling my OB when I, when I found out I was pregnant, that I had this history and that I was a little concerned and she said, okay, we'll talk about it. And, and just having it front and center and fighting against the impulse, which came to me so naturally, consciously holding it consciously in my heart and in my mind all the time, I think allowed me to, to move through it. To overgeneralize for a second, but disordered eating, um, which obviously can be different in, in different people. And, and it is, um, you know, they're restrictors, they're bingers, they're binge purgers, they're emotional eaters, you know, I tried all of those. <laughs> we're all on a continuum about relationship with food, right? And you can't give up food like you can alcohol if your That's addiction right. happens to be alcohol, not that giving up alcohol is easy. But you yeah. know, as I say to my well, disordered know. eating patients who finally have recognized that their disordered eating is a thing, you know, it's like walking around with a tiger on a leash, like you have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, 
but for other people who've experienced trauma, whatever that has been, it might be an addiction to not just manipulating food or body, but alcohol or recreational drugs or, you know, shopping, you know, tweeting, like, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. I avoided all the other addictions. And I know it's very common for women. If you have one, you often have more than one. And, and, and um, sort of what is the primary addiction is always kind of a question mark. And I, I never had an issue there. I did have periods in my life where I was obsessed with understanding addiction. And I think mm-hmm. it was because of my own compulsive behaviors in regards to food. I mean, like I consumed addiction memoirs, like crazy in my 30s yeah like a Dustin Burroughs and like all 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 those things well yeah I like I love reading not you wouldn't be surprised to learn that I love reading books of like tortured people who have had like incredible like I don't read fiction because like life is too interesting and too painful and I love crying and laughing in the same read or movie tell me about how the the grappling with your mental health and like stepping away from the eating disorder how did that then channel you into being who you are even now, but, but maybe even at Levi's. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I started working at Levi's when I was 29. It was not what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I actually started an advertising agency before that. I was very, um, you know, hell bent on, you know, doing it myself and, and not asking anyone for help, my parents for help. Um, so I took a job I didn't want, which is normal. You know, you're an yeah. adult, you, you yep. make your, you make your way. Um, but I remember thinking my first job in advertising, you know, the night I took it, like, I better not be doing this in five years. And lo and behold, over 30 years later, cause I, I wanted to write books and make movies, which we can talk about later. Cause I did end up doing that, but I didn't really have the confidence to, to do it. And I, I found myself in this agency and then ultimately at, at Levi's and I was good at it. And that really fed something in me. You know, I liked it and I had a community and it was a very young, youthful, creative community. And so I kept going and I was getting positive feedback. Now, I will say walking away from the disordered eating behaviors and dysfunctional kind of body image didn't clear the path. Let's just face it. Like, like that's a journey that, it, I mean, I'm sure you're still walking on today. I'm going to yeah. assume like, right. And yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I feel we're always walking down a journey. I feel pretty rooted in myself at this point. I am 53, so let's hope. I continued to struggle in ways that I did not understand. I was married. I had two children by, you know, my early 30s. And I I struggled with, you know, depression, with um, self-esteem issues, imposter syndrome, which is not uncommon in in type A women. Um, I thought everything was my fault. Everything that didn't go right was always my fault. I internalized everything. Um, And it really got sort of oppressive. And so somewhere around my late 30s, I think I was about 39, I decided I was going to try to write it down. Um, And that's how the book came to be. And it, you know, I didn't really think I would be able to get a book published. I wasn't a writer, not a trained writer. Um, I wasn't a famous gymnast, you know, that, you know, I wasn't an Olympic gold medalist that could get a book published or have a ghost writer. And so I sat down to write it for myself and to just sort of understand it and make sense of it. Um, And ultimately, I was able to to get it, it published. Now, what I did not realize and what I said to myself when I sat down to write it was write the stuff that's hard and embarrassing. Um, If you're ashamed about it, there's something there. And if you 
write that and one other person reads it and feels less ashamed because they felt the same way, then you're successful. Then you've helped just one person. Where did you get this like wicked wisdom? I mean, is this through your therapist? This was still pre having a good therapist. Because, <laughs> because as you know, like one of the ways we counsel people in medicine and in mental health to help reroute sort of like the narratives in our mind about who we are and like what we're not capable of or capable of it. And then like one way we help people sort of rewrite that story, if you will, and to then take the, the, the narrative that is often not rooted in facts, like that I'm a bad person. I, I failed because I'm a flawed person to reroute those narratives. I mean, this is the genesis of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Is like taking those thoughts that are sometimes rooted in fact, but sometimes not, but then that the drive your behaviors that are unhealthy yeah. and, and to reroute those highways that are paved like I-95 is in concrete, you have to really, you have to first look at the thoughts. And one of the ways I help people look at the thoughts, whether it's with me or with their therapist, is writing it down and writing the painful stuff down. Because when you see it and you name it, and you, you, you recognize, wow, I think that every single day. And then you see it from a distance. That is a dysfunctional thought that is not rooted. In fact, then you can actually pave the highway into the grassy, you know, I-95, you know, artery that is going to then take you down a path of behaviors that are healthier. So the fact that you took yourself, you, you took your thoughts and you, and you put it in writing and took the painful parts first, I'm like, geez, Give this woman a contract to be a therapist before you even did really good therapy or had a good therapist. It, sounds it was like. definitely before I had a, a good therapist. For me, the insight was, and I was kind of an obsessive reader of, of memoir and, and yeah. in reading memoirs about addiction, mental health issues, that those were the moments that spoke to me in those yeah. books. Yep. And so I felt like I can do that. And I felt like when I read memoir, what made something compelling was a story that had sort of broad emotional truth, but was very specific about the world you were entering into and maybe didn't know much about. And I was like, well, I, that's nobody knows about this world. They think it's what they see on TV. And yet it's a coming of age story in a sense. So it has broader, um, you don't have to do gymnastics to understand that for a young person finding themselves and defining themselves on their own terms, which is ultimately, I think, what I wrote about, rejecting what everybody else was telling me I was and needed to be and saying, no, this is who I am and what I'm going to be. I, I felt like I could write that in a way that would resonate with people. And, you know, ultimately, I suppose I, I did. I was able to get it published. Now, what I did not understand Lucy at the time. And, you know, I think I'm glad I wrote it without thinking I'd get it published because I didn't hold anything back, but I did expose the darkness yeah. in the sport and yep. I did not expect what I got back for exposing I, that, which was I, brutal. I can't even imagine, but when you expose yourself, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, first of all, when you do that for yourself, right? even people doing it alone, writing a journal, which I think is always a healthy thing for the very reasons we've talked about, writing it down, like that can trigger, right, itself, the thoughts yeah. and the feelings and the behaviors that come with it. But then when you write about it and put it out publicly, I mean, as you said earlier to me, your parents were very invested in your career. Um, there are people involved who are, they're coaches. Like, I, I can only imagine that that trauma was big. For me, actually, it was freeing 
Because it was like, you know, nothing dissipates shame like sunlight. It was all out there. So I was fine. What I did not expect was the dragging I got. One, I did not understand social media in 2008. I don't think anybody did. And I didn't understand what this would trigger in the sport from coaches, from current athletes who were rejecting it and defending, you know, their experience. Um, I didn't, from the leadership in the sport, from, I mean, it was, it was absolutely brutal. Uh, You know, all the, now you would know and expect it, but liar, grifter, we're going to sue you. We're going to hurt you. Um, Everything she says is a lie. She's a loser and a bitter failed ex-gymnast, which hurt, you know, all that hurt, but mostly it was just scary and sort of devastating. Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. You've just aired all of these vulnerable thoughts and it's cathartic for you and you're being dragged through the mud, which is not uncommon in like any sort of abusive relationship, right? It's like when the, when the woman, when the, when the woman leaves the the abusive husband, he gets louder and more abusive. And it's, it's, it's like, and that is that kind of, that kind of process that you went through It's pretty extraordinary. I wonder how that translated into your work at Levi's and how that brought you to where, you know, the current moment. Well, by the time the book came out, I was a a vice president already. I mean, there's a lot of vice presidents. So I was fairly senior in, in my career. People only sort of half noticed. I mean, I will say I didn't tell anybody I'd written a book and it was not because I was embarrassed what was in it. I did not want anyone to think that I wasn't fully committed to my job there. And that if there was a promotion on the table, I didn't want anyone to say, well, she just wants to be a writer or she just wants to be this. Like, I did not want my commitment doubted. And this is at a time when, I mean, as a woman in corporate America, and at the time that culture was very male dominated, I didn't have pictures of my kids on my desk. Like all that stuff, you know, that you hear about women sort of, I just, I didn't want my commitment doubted in any way. Now the book came out and I was on like Good Morning America. So out went that, you know, idea of keeping it a secret. Um, And ultimately people were very supportive, you know, and they, they sort of saw me in a different light. It had the exact opposite effect of, of what I thought internally. They saw me as, you know, brave, courageous, a leader, very creative, which helps in the industry that I'm in. And so, you know, ultimately if anything, it was very helpful um, in in my career at Levi's. Um, it didn't change the fact that outside of Levi's, it was very difficult. And, you know, out of self-preservation, I was very careful in how I talked about what I said in the beginning. Um, I said, I'm not, this is not an indictment of the sport. This is my experience. I knew very well it was an indictment of the sport. And over time, I became more confident and more direct that the sport environment, training environment was indeed the problem. But at at first it was very difficult and I I was definitely trying to protect myself, but it took, you know, five years before people stopped calling me a liar. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then it wasn't until, I, I, you know, I was one of the only people really at this point in, you know, 2014, 15, that was willing to call it what it was. It was me and one other woman, Dominique Mosiano, who was um, an Olympian and a gold medalist. And so ultimately I was a go-to to talk about abuse in sport in the news, et cetera. And when the Nasser case broke, Larry Nasser, who was the USA gymnastics team doctor and abused hundreds, sexually abused hundreds of, of, of athletes, I was sort of redeemed. That was a decade after. And, and, you know, the community said, oh, we always supported her, which is a lie. Yeah. Rewriting history as we see in our world right now, right? In many That's different spheres. Right. You're here processing the trauma you experienced in your life and how it affected you mentally and physically. You write about it. And then you are, you're, you're healing from that childhood trauma while being released from some of that pain by writing the book, but then also being kind of re-traumatized by people saying you're a liar and a grifter. Let's acknowledge that when you have to, when you, anyone trying to break a bad relationship with their own internal narrative, their own behaviors, whether it's with food or alcohol or whatever, it's hard work and it's pain. So whenever I'm suggesting to someone in my office, for example, like it's time to think about really examining your relationship with alcohol or examining your marriage, which I think is affecting your health in some way. Like there's a reason why people don't, right? <laughs> because it's hard. There's a reason people don't. There's a reason why staying uncomfortable, why people are comfortably uncomfortable. And that is in my mind, what, what medicine and what you are doing is, is about, is about facing uncomfortable truths, facing the shame we have and naming it. And then saying, look, this shame is so deep rooted that it's driving a lot of my physical and, and emotional health. And then, and then, and then not just naming it in your book and your writing, publishing the book, but then doing something about it. And that is like, that is why people stay addicted. That is why people stay in difficult marriages. That is why people stay disordered with their eating, exercising, whatever it is. And, and so that's why ultimately my job isn't really about checking people's cholesterol and their weight, because when you look under the hood of any human being, there's a lot more in there than just a set of labs. And so you now have done this incredible work through the course of the pandemic where you have been such a fierce advocate for children. And it all makes sense to me now as it did watching you grow into this advocate even more than you already were. Because of my outspokenness about the sport, I got, um, I became kind of a whistleblower, came to be known yeah. as sort of a whistleblower. And that enabled me to, 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 to make a documentary called Athlete A, um, which really exposes the abuses in the sport. And it's centered around Nasser, but I think we connect it more broadly to the abuse in the sport as a whole. And that came out in, in 2020. And I'm, I'm very, very proud of that. Because what you're doing, Jen, is you're giving other people permission to say, me too, right? It's, 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 we're entering an era where, as you said, we're shining a light on shame and shame dies when you put sunlight on it and you're helping other people. And then, you know, it's kind of like the way AA works, right? It's like, sponsorship. It's like if you sponsor someone else and that solidifies your recovery that's and that's what that's what your film is. Yeah, has that's done. a good analogy. Yeah, and it really inspired um a generation of athletes who didn't even previously 
see the culture as abusive, but knew that they were suffering. It was very important to me that it was not just about Nasser and this one bad guy, and that it's not even just about the sexual abuse that does happen, but it connects that to the broader culture of emotional and physical abuse. And the number of young women, I mean, thousands who have written to me to say, I didn't even know. It gives me chills because it's not just about sexual abuse. It's not just about one man. It's about, it's about, it's about treating people with dignity and respect and letting them be who they are in their authentic selves, letting them be successful, letting them be a national champion on a balance beam or uh, in some event, but, but, but with, with, but, but through their own ability to self-actualize and with their own skills and not being shamed. Yes. And in, in this sport in particular, and it is not uncommon in other sports, swimming, et cetera, within the Olympic movement more broadly, if you work with children, your primary responsibility is to their emotional health development and well-being, period. Even if you're a national team coach, that's your primary obligation. You need to see yourself as such, as an educator. And there are no requirements. Anyone can be a coach and they can do it any way they want. There's really, there's no there's no test, there's no nothing. And they can do it however they want. And that's where we need to, to get to in sport. Ironically, you know, the film came out, it came out in the summer of 2020. So it's just after, you know, school lockdowns had started, you know, after the spring. And I was very early and outspoken, literally from day one of the school closures, that this was going to be really harmful and problematic for children. And when I started to speak about it, I really didn't think it was controversial. Like I thought we all accepted right. that kids need to be in school. And so I was very surprised just as I was when I had written the book and it caused this, you know, tremendous blowback because I called out the culture as abusive. I was very surprised at the blowback I got almost instantly. Um, but it, I was so puzzled by it, Lucy, because I was like, but obviously this is bad for kids. Like I just, I, so I kept going despite the fact that I was spoken to and warned. And at this point, I had a very senior position at, at, at Levi's. I was the chief marketing officer. Um, but I was speaking as a mom, a public school mom. And, and, you know, there were discussions over the course of 18 months to two years that I should stop doing this. And I, it was too important to me. You know, it was, um, I felt kids were being harmed. I, kids were being harmed. I didn't just feel it. I knew it. And as you know, from the beginning, the age stratification was pretty clear, but somehow that wasn't really, you weren't really allowed to talk about that. But I had been, you know, looking at the data coming out of Italy and the median age, I think was over 80. And um, so it just seemed clear to me that kids were mercifully protected um, and that we need to do everything that we could within our power to protect them and their future and their development. And we were just doing the opposite. And it was just heartbreaking to me. And um, so I was outspoken from the beginning, um, not just on social media. I mean, I had written op-eds. I appeared on the local news um, with another mom in San Francisco. We had initiated rallies in San Francisco by the fall to get schools open. Um, and it was just... I mean, anything I went through in speaking out about gymnastics was nothing compared <laughs> compared to this. Wow. Um, we were all deemed, you know, every horrible thing you could possibly be named, you know, from racist to anti everything. And um, it just didn't even have to make sense. And it was difficult to steel myself against it. I mean, there was, you know blowback from the public, but internally I was definitely being counseled that I needed to stop, but I couldn't 
do it, Lucy, because the truth was sitting right there in front of my face. And I, you know, I, I will say, I don't know that I knew it at the time consciously, but the fact that I had withstood the blowback um, in the gymnastics situation and that eventually 10 years later, what I said was acknowledged as true, that gave me some strength and some right. courage. So that's an interesting point. And I wanted to stop there for a second or pause there for a second to highlight that because you wouldn't be surprised to hear that, for example, my patients who have done a lot of therapy and self-examination, who've done trauma work or have examined their anxiety or moods have, have done, I, this is a huge generalization, but generally did quote better with the disruption and losses of the pandemic than people who had never looked under the hood at their emotional health. And so it doesn't surprise me that the work you put in doing trauma work and examining your relationship with food to your relationship with your own body helps you push further into what you saw as the truth, which, which, which is the truth. It's so devastating to me. And so I couldn't, even though I was warned um, and strongly encouraged to stop um, by my employer, I didn't. And, you know, you're familiar with the story. I, I no longer have a job now. I'm okay with that. You know, it's not how I wanted it to end. I've been there. I had been at the company close to 23 years. I love the company. I worked up from an entry-level position. I could have potentially been the next CEO, the first female CEO. I was the first female global brand president. I'm really proud. Um, I'm most proud of the mentorship and, you know, how much I cared about employees and giving them opportunities. Um, and so, you know, I didn't want it to end this way. And I certainly knew from early on that it could, it was a possibility because I was not doing as I was asked. I was not being obedient. Um, and I had to make a choice and I made a choice every single day. You know, yeah. I could have chosen to stop and I didn't because I thought kids were more important. And here we are. I, I don't have a job, but that's okay. I have a lot of skills and I know I'll be fine. And what I'm focused on now is making a, another, a second documentary. So, um, and what you have, as you beautifully wrote, uh, you have your voice and you have your authenticity. And that's a good segue, I think, into the question I want to ask you, which is, you know, how do you define success? When you were a gymnast, success was clearly defined as winning competing and being the best, which, which, which you were. I think for me at this stage in my life, I'm, I'm lucky. I can take a beat. I can take a pause. I've, I've done well as a corporate executive. I need to work again, like a regular job at some point, but not right away. Um, for me, what was absolutely imperative and has been sort of the path that I'm on is to be able to live as like a fully integrated human, you know, and not leave pieces of myself, um, outside the front door to satisfy a company, a person, a manager, a, like I, I can't do it. It makes me insane. It literally makes me insane. And so sadly, the only way for me to live and be fully integrated was to leave um, yep. because I was not able to speak about these things that I consider so incredibly important and do it in, in my job. And I think that's, 
problematic and that's a conversation for another day. And I think you've experienced this and there's just been no room for debate. There's just silencing of any dissent at all. And that's incredibly problematic. And and I would say that's not a Levi's thing. That's kind of the world. Oh, that's we're a world in. thing right now. Yeah. That's a world we're living in. And they found themselves at the center of it with me. And I just made the choice. I mean, whatever we can talk about fired or left, but I, I decided to walk away without severance, et cetera, so that I could kind of have myself fully intact. For me, that's success right now, but I recognize I'm lucky that I had, I could do that. I am financially in a good spot. I could do that. I have opportunities going forward. Success outside of sort of my own personal kind of psychological successes. I want this story told. I want, we need to faithfully represent the facts of what happened and where kids are, because if we don't truly do it and we just keep going, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Let's move on. We will not get these children the help that they need and they will not recover without additional help. We can't just go back to, I mean, I know right now what's happening in San Francisco, kids are being passed who can't even read. This is not setting these kids up for success. And so the reason I want to tell this story, and it was the same reason I wanted to make the film an athlete A, and film has such broad reach versus a book, is I want to faithfully represent exactly what happened, the policies that led to these children being kept out of school for 18 months in California in particular. And then I want to accurately represent where they are now, educationally, developmentally, psychologically, so that it can prompt or be part of prompting a conversation about how do we help them and how do we prevent this from happening again? That's why I want to make it. And I I think the power of documentary is what I learned from Athlete A I mean, investigations into gymnastics governing bodies around the world were launched because of the film, because athletes saw it and they said that happened to me and they demanded it. And the power of film is pretty remarkable in that way. And so that's why I want to I want to do it. It's so great because you've channeled your struggle with mental and physical health into wellness to use an overly used word, but wellness really is a sense of like peacefulness and calm and agency and integrated health. Um, Unfortunately in our world right now, wellness means like candles that Gwyneth Paltrow sells you, you know, on Instagram, but, and look, I love her meatloaf, but like, I'm not going to get my medical advice or mental health advice from her. Um, But, but, but you've channeled that into being healthy and, and integrated and then you're making a difference and helping other people with the acknowledgement, as you beautifully do, that you you have humility about the whole thing. You know your place in the world. You know you have, quote, privilege, right? And I have a privilege of being able to talk to you and the ability to reach a wider audience about the relevance of mental health to physical health. Because guess what? We all have mental health. It's not a question of whether you have mental health or not. It's about whether you reckoned with it and connected the dots between your mental and physical health, which you have, and then you've gone above that and you're helping other people give themselves permission to recognize they're human, that health is about more than being on a, a balance beam and winning a gold medal, that it's more than just being the CEO of a company. It's about having agency and having a voice and having opportunity and access. And I just can't tell you how, like, I feel like maternal towards you right now because I'm a mother, but like, I'm so proud of you. Um, you know, it's what we teach our kids. I know you're a mother and a devoted mother. I'm a mother too. And it's what, you know, my kids have just gone through the college process and SATs and all that sort of 
measuring and, 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 and it's such a good reminder of, of what I think you and I believe in, um, is that, yes, I want you to do well in the SAT, but what I want you to go to college to do and go on in the world to do is to be an authentic, actualized person who is humble, who can, you know, look beyond the tip of your nose, who can think in like the ands and not the buts, who can think in, in not just the black or white, but who can think in the gray and the critical thinking skills, you know, really come from dialogue, which is ultimately why I had you on this podcast. Can I add, can I add one thing? Because please, I, I, please. You know, watch observing you and, and people like you has given me strength. I think that I want people to know you can withstand the pushback. You can. You can. You can. If you see a thing, you have to be able to, to fight for the thing that you care about and that you think is really important. It, you know, your thing might not be my thing. Right. But if no one's arguing with you and calling you names, then what you're saying probably, you know, maybe you're probably telling the pretty line. Yeah. You're probably, yes. Or you're saying something that everybody already believes. So you can withstand it. It is hard. I don't invite it. I don't, I don't like not being liked. I don't like being called names. Some people mind it less. My husband doesn't care at all. That's not me. I, I like, I, I feel like I'm a, a, a bridge builder in a sense. And I think that was what made me successful at work. I'm not doing a great job at that right now because the bridges are so broken, but you can withstand it. And that's, that's my goal. I think if I can tell the story in the right way, I can, you know, in the film, for instance, I can get people to sort of open themselves up to the idea that maybe we're very pro school closure, that there was another way. Um, but you can withstand it. You can stand in the gap and you can take it. It will suck and you might cry some days and you might give up a lot, um, but you get yourself and your integrity and you get to That's live right. as a fully integrated person. And I I think it's so important and, and people like you and, 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 and others, you know, on the days when I feel that I can't handle it, I see what others are going through. And, you know, I've reached out to you from time to time because we can draw strength from each other. You can withstand it. If 100%. Everybody, if everybody likes you, I, I think you might not be doing something right. <laughs> if everybody likes you, you might not be doing something right. Or you're trying too hard to please people, which that's ultimately right. is the birthplace of failure. And that's exactly what I try to teach my kids. And it's not really teaching them. It's not like we sit down with you like a whiteboard. You model it. You model it. You, you, you do hard things. And I can sleep at night as long as I have spoken my truth and the truth. I've listened to other people and I've thought critically. I've been kind. It's not that I'm kind all the time. But no, direct. But that, and, and then direct. And that, you know, you've said you've established boundaries, right? Like you've said no when like you said no to Levi's, you said no to the gymnastics, like no is the new yes, if you will, when you're trying to be authentically meeting your, your needs that then meet, you know, that then serve other people. I think this is my learning in my life is, you know, I've been my most unhappy when I've let others define what my path is and who I am and not just unhappy, but like literally disintegrated. Yeah. And so I just can't let that happen again. I, I have to kind of stand in what I believe, even if that creates a lot of um, difficulty in my own life, because I think I can withstand that difficulty. I can't withstand being pulled limb from limb to please yep. other people. Literally. 
Yeah. And it's what we talked about um, on our messaging. Just I was messaging back and forth with you that you have your chosen family as well as your biological family. And I choose to surround myself with people, not just who tell me what I want to hear, although that's nice, but people who disagree with me, but who are respectful, people who support me, who love me, who will go grab a beer when you just need to, or who you can cry with. And so, you know, I think that it's also about being strategic in, in your relationships and, and, and making sure your, your needs are met. Tell me, um, tell me what's, what's like one piece of advice you'd have to somebody who's listening to this podcast, who's maybe going through something hard, which, you know, I think we all are in different ways, but like, what's one piece of advice to somebody who's going through a struggle? Well, I think you have to find your community, you know, um, I don't know how to guide people to do that, but, um, they're out there. And for all the horrors of social media, one of the things that's amazing about it is you can connect with like-minded people. And, you know, even amidst the blowback with the gymnastics stuff that I went through, athletes who the story resonated with reached out to me and that brought me strength. Um, You can find people through social media. That is one of the beautiful things. And I've built a really amazing community over the last two years. uh, And I'm very grateful for that. And it gives me, um, it gives me a lot of strength. Let's take a quick break. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed, and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www.kglobal.com slash podcast. Welcome back. Let's get on with our conversation. We'll end on this note is that you've dared to be vulnerable. You've, you've dared to look beyond the surface of what society and what other people wanted you to be, and you dared to be vulnerable, and then you made good from that, and I'm just so grateful, Jen, that you're willing to talk to me. I'm so grateful to Thanks, call you Jen. a friend. And I'm just like, man, Thanks, I'm man. I'm watching you like like a hawk, watching you shine. And it's just cool. Thanks. It's cool. You give me inspiration and, and, and so many others. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I realize I should have probably called you Dr. McBride. Should I <laughs> I called you Lucy? No way. No, <laughs> okay. you're not going to call me Dr. McBride. No, 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 no. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my multi-talented brother, Walter Martin. On the way out, please enjoy his song, Hey Sister. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well. I'd like to let my little sister share the microphone with me for a second. She's going to help me sing a song called... Hey sister. Hey sister. Yeah. Something in the way you look looks just like me. Well, that kind of makes sense. I mean, I am your sister. And something in the way you talk sounds just like Anne Marie. Yeah, I could see that. And Grandma looks just like Papa. It's true, isn't it? Mama looks.
looks just like Cousin Bob We should put them all together And call it a family Because like life is too interesting And too painful yeah. And I love crying and laughing In the same read or movie